Hello everybody, this is Nate Sheets with Organ Behavior Consultation and Cognitive Supports. Today on the It's a Brain Thing podcast, we are continuing our book club on Dr. Mona Delahook's Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavior Challenges. Again, we're doing chapter five. If this is your first time listening, you might want to, at the very least, start at chapter one of the book club, if not earlier in the podcast, so that way you can know a lot of the terms that we're using. I also want to again encourage everybody to please purchase this book. It is one of the most important books that anybody can read, and I want to make sure that we support Dr. Della Hook's work. So I want to get right into it today. Dr. Della Hook starts us off in chapter five uh, with a story about Morgan. And this is a really important chapter because it shows that, especially when we're thinking about what is common in kids with FASDs, many of them were adopted later in life. There were some early issues of abuse and neglect, but a lot of parents also adopted their child at birth. And so we want to go into what are stressors that have nothing to do with abuse and neglect, but they can have the same impact in terms of trauma or stress or faulty neuroception. And Morgan, as an infant, had difficulties with medical issues. Um, He was called a handful. He had continual fits. Um, He was continually dysregulated. But eventually, like lots of babies, these issues stopped. And Dr. Delahook says, quote, that is when he was happy. When he wasn't, he became moody, irritable, and controlling. He would protest and cry when his parents dropped him off at school. Though he managed first grade, his teachers expressed concern about his social skills. Though his environment seemed optimal, loving parents in a stable home where all of his basic needs were met, he still struggled. That's on page 135. And I probably should tell you the name of the chapter, you know, chapter five, (laughs) addressing what underlies behaviors, working on challenges from the bottom up. And so Dr. Delahook up to this point has talked to us about bottom-up versus top-down responses and regulation. Frankly, a lot of the time we're trying to get kids, whether or not they have an FASD, but who, who are not developmentally ready to use top-down thinking processes, when really we need to look at what's going on deeper in the body and in the brain and start to build bottom-up soothing abilities, which will then lead us to the more complicated top-down regulation processes. And this is true for everybody. And the next part of the chapter is about figuring out what underlies this behavior. So we are looking for what are called triggers. Dr. Delahook gives us the IDEA acronym, INQUIRE, DETERMINE, EXAMINE, AND ADDRESS. And so that's inquire about the child's history and track behaviors to discover patterns, determine what circumstances contribute to the child's distress, examine what our investigation reveals about the triggers and underlying causes, and finally address the developmental challenges contributing to the behaviors through our interactions and targeted therapeutic supports. So that's a lot of information, but we're going to go through it together. On pages 137 through 139, there are several worksheets, which are very important, and they're going to help us to determine the triggers, right? And so the first one, for example, helps us to figure out what could have happened during pregnancy and in the early months. Now, of course, when we're talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, there is the element of were they exposed to alcohol? Were they exposed to drugs? Which drugs were they exposed to? But then we also have things like stress. Were there stressors during pregnancy? And so even if your child does not have an FASD or if you're a biological parent, um, the stressors are also very important. 
the worksheets are going to help us go through various things like what were the stressors during pregnancy, what was mom's and uh, the fetus's health during pregnancy, were there any complications, was there premature delivery, how did the labor and delivery go generally, and then of course, you know, what were those health challenges during the first year, especially things like hospitalizations, and it could be for anything. It doesn't matter whether or not it was a quote-unquote minor issue. We also want to ask about the infant's relationship with primary caregivers, where they move from home to home, and how was their relationship with those caregivers. If the child started preschool, how did that go? Did it, was it stressful for them? And of course, then we have the things that we typically think of when we think of stress and trauma, abuse, neglect, and other types of trauma. I'm not going to walk us too much through these worksheets because they're really meant for you to do, um, but I would highly recommend that you take the time to fill these out and to answer these questions because this chapter is about the power of behavior tracking, which a lot of parents that I talk to, you know, behavior tracking does not necessarily seem to be their top priority. There's so many things to do. They, maybe you've done it in the past and you didn't really see the point, but we really want to look at these things very carefully to find some patterns. And so why is this? Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, by tracking behaviors, we can gain an appreciation for the underlying needs the behavior is potentially meeting for the child. We can also discover the adaptive and protective functions the behaviors serve for the child. And that's on page 140. She also tells us, and I tell parents this all the time, if there's a lack of patterns, quote, the lack of patterns become useful information in of itself. And there are major areas that we want to be looking at. And the, again, the worksheets will walk us through it. The first worksheet is pregnancy and early months. The second worksheet is early history. And then we have our behavior tracking. So she gives us behavior tracking pages on 141 and then talks about how we would apply it to a child. A big part of what's going on is tracking a child's sleep. And so if you have a child who struggles with sleep, it is very important that we address this. There's lots of different reasons. One thing I mentioned to people is that our executive functioning fuel, which is the finite ability we all have in using our executive functioning skills, things like our attention span, ability to resist distractions, impulse control, planning and problem solving, all the major skills that we really need, it is replenished through our sleep. And so if we struggle with sleep, if we struggle with quality sleep, that has to be a priority because if we can't sleep, our brains are not being set up for success the next day. Dr. Delahook continues with Morgan's story, quote, When I had first met Morgan's parents, they had mentioned that as a toddler, he'd had some difficulty sleeping. That wasn't a red flag at first, but at our second meeting, I delved more deeply into sleep issues. The parents recalled that back in Morgan's colic days, they would drive him around in the car to lull him to sleep, gently carrying him to his crib after an hour of driving, unquote. And that's on page 142. After this, Dr. Delahook and the family then focused on improving not only their child's sleep, but the whole family's sleep pattern. And, you know, I can tell that for some people, the idea of changing the whole family's routine, especially if there are multiple kids in the evening, seems like a very daunting task. So we have to look at the practicalities of that, but it is essential. She continues on page 144, quote, I often have parents write down or tell me how a child's day is before we begin a therapy session. This helps us determine how much to ask of the child in the session. 
I also recommend that parents share such information with others who spend time with the child so that each adult in the child's life can titrate the demands placed on the child depending on what the child is managing in his body and mind, unquote. And so this is really important, especially when we think of school, whether it's online because of COVID or when we return back to brick and mortar schools, that the communication between home and school and then, of course, from school to home about what pathways is this child on? What can we expect? What are the potential triggers today? That has to be taken into account if we are going to help the kiddo remain on the green pathway and help their brain feel safe. Part of this is specifically looking at stress and the pathways. And Dr. Delahook gives us a worksheet on page 145 called Tracking a Child's Stress Load in Real Time. And it asks questions of if we perceive any extra stress in our kiddo, how our kiddo is sleeping, how they ate that day, how their health issues were, and additional stressors and observations. And so when we look at, particularly with the issues of sleep, we want to look at how can we use their sensory preferences and their safety preferences to help prepare them for restorative nighttime sleep, as she tells us on page 146. She says, quote, it's very important that we are both in the green pathway as much as possible during the evening routine. And so many of you, if you think about the evening routines with you and your child or children, the question is, are you all on the green pathway or is there stress because we're running around, there's homework trying to be done, we're trying to get the kids to follow directions, they're struggling with transitions, they don't want to go to bed. All of those things are not helpful to restorative sleep. Again, we want to lay the foundation of the green pathway as much as possible. Having ongoing red pathway interactions and lack of safety is only continuing to reinforce that in everybody. So we want to do something different. This is why we've been talking about the importance of figuring out our child's sensory systems and using sensory preferences as ways to actually achieve the connection and the green pathway and the co-regulation and eventually the coping skills that we want our child to learn. And this chapter in particular is a lot about this term co-regulation. And Dr. Delahook asked Morgan's mom to be aware of her own pathway. And so we all must do this. What pathway as the parent, as the supporter, am I on? And in the last episode, we had worksheets that helped us to identify our own signs of dysregulation, whether we go on the red or blue pathways. And in this case, Morgan's mom downloaded a mindfulness app, which she used in her office after work, quote, creating a space for herself and an intention to consciously calm her mind before she arrived home, unquote. And I've been telling parents a lot about this lately, that it can't be something that you just think you're going to click into as you are dealing with kids. And so if you are working, for example, and the moment you walk through the door, you are bombarded with children with your, you know, wanting to talk to you, demanding things of you, and that sets you onto the red pathway or maybe the blue pathway, then maybe you need to pull your car over around the corner before you get there and consciously prepare yourself. So the idea of this mindfulness app would be that Morgan's mom puts it in her routine at the end of every day. It becomes something she intentionally does rather than her just thinking, oh, I got this, right? Based on the knowledge that Dr. Delahook may have given her. It's not gonna just take listening to professionals that get it, like Dr. Delahook. It's going to take 
true change in your life and routine. And you have to prepare yourself to, okay, when I walk through the door, this might happen, but I have to show signs of green pathway or those neuroceptive cues of safety, a smile on the face or a neutral tone, making sure that our eyes are bright, being playful, those kinds of things, being flexible. Dr. Delahook continues, quote, Once they were home, the plan called for both parents to speak in softer tones since Morgan's sensory profile indicated that he was highly sensitive to adults' emotions and tones of voice. I suggested that they continue this warm and relaxed tone into dinner when they could engage Morgan in playful, fun conversation, a shift from their habit of eating quickly with news on the television, unquote. And that's on page 146 as well. And again, you know, the idea of some of our kids with FASDs even sitting at the table, that's too much of an expectation. So this is remembering that everything we're talking about is individualized, but we have to look at the goal here, making sure that as much as possible into the evening for a child who we're trying to help get to sleep, that we are keeping those warm facial expressions, warm voice tones, playfulness, flexibility, and thinking about the environment. Is having the news on while we're trying to engage at the table the best option? No. And that <laughs> never. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that we're considering all of these things. Dr. Delahook gave other suggestions as well. Um, she asked them to dim the lights throughout the house, to play some of Morgan's prosodic vocal songs in the background, providing additional cues that it was time to slow down and relax, unquote. And that's on page 146. So if we know that certain types of music are going to calm our child down because that's what they're naturally drawn to, then that's something that we can play. And sleep is a big issue, and it's not the whole subject of this chapter, but just to go through the approach to sleep habits that Dr. Delahook gives us in the book, this is on page 147. Parents considered their own personal stress levels and how it impacted Morgan. Mom began a short meditation practice after work before she came home. His father shortened his work day by one hour. Both parents monitored their emotional regulation and spoke in softer tones. Screen time for everyone stopped one hour prior to bedtime. Parents shifted the sensory ambience toward Morgan's preferences, so the lights were turned down. Soft vocal music was in the background. His parents offered Morgan a shoulder massage after bath time, and the family began to read a book together as part of the bedtime routine. Those are all examples of how we need to shift especially stressful, chaotic evenings into one where we are focused literally on just keeping our child in the green pathway. And in regards to sleep, Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, it is well worth the effort to inquire about the sleep quality and quantity of your child or the children you work with in order to evaluate whether poor sleep is contributing to a child's behavioral challenges. And as Dr. Delahook tells us, in the case of Morgan, once they were able to improve his sleep, he was actually able to start attending to other things at school. He was doing better slowly but surely. The next part of the chapter is really, really interesting to me, going into this idea of using a child's sensory preferences to calm their physical bodies, to soothe them, to keep them on the green pathway, which then allows them to be social and engaging with others. And really, this part of the book was very validating to me, and I've mentioned this before, but I've always intuitively felt that it is the sensory preferences of somebody that is exactly the direction we should go in. You will have heard me tell you not to wait until you see that a child is overstimulated or struggling with some kind of sensory dysregulation to then start a sensory exercise, but rather try to be proactive and putting sensory activities into the routine. 
Dr. Delahook tells us on page 148, quote, by recruiting a child's sensory preferences and combining them with non-judgmental engaged interactions, we can better soothe a child when he or she experiences behavior challenges. Just as sensations can send us into distress or unease, they can also help us feel comfortable and safe, unquote. And over the next several pages, we have preferences that are specific to our child. And these are worksheets that you can fill out. Very, very important worksheets here. And I'm going to go through some of these and relate them just to myself as a child. And because this is something that I'm very interested in right now are how children or some children are drawn to voices or sounds and the kind of music, especially in the auditory realm that we're going to talk about others. I'm going to give you some examples of not only in the past how auditorily I was personally soothed, but even in the present, how certain things that are individualized to Nate give me the same sensory experience of being safe or being soothed. And I have to be really careful here because I don't want to break copyright. So I'm going to play very short clips of things that are for me personally soothing um, just to give you an example. One, I have recently rediscovered and really it got me into a lot of the interest that I have in this subject but y'all might remember Enya, <laughs> um, very popular um, in the 90s, her song Orinoco Flow, sail away, sail away, you know that song? That's a big one. But my sister actually had a CD, <laughs> an album of hers called Shepherd Moons, which I stole. Very common in my household was for me to steal uh, certain albums. And this album in particular, I listened to hundreds, if not thousands of times while falling asleep throughout my childhood. I was very much repetitive in in what I fell asleep to, and it would occasionally change. But the two big ones were this particular album and also the Nutcracker album. When I recently rediscovered Enya by accident, because her music was in the background of some YouTube video, I was like, oh my goodness, that's Enya. And I have been listening to this again as I'm falling asleep and, and just trying to remember, you know, what was it about these experiences? So let me give you an example of just some of the sound from the song Caribbean Blue. Obviously meant to be soothing. Good stuff. So um, again, I can't play too much because I don't want to accidentally break copyright, but that's an example of the kind of sounds that as a kid I would listen to a lot. And I also mentioned the Nutcracker, which I'm not going to play right now. But for me as a child, um, I struggled with pop music because I couldn't understand the words. And I still struggle with that to a significant degree in music. In terms of the type of music I was drawn to, I liked really orchestrated music. So classical music where there was lots of instruments. That's what my mind was drawn to or music where the singer happened to clearly enunciate, which for me was in two major domains. One was in worship music, and the other was musical theater. And in musical theater, unlike pop music, uh, one of the points is to really enunciate what you're saying. And so as a child, that allowed me to actually engage with the music, and so that's what I was naturally drawn to, you know, and that led to me being a musical theater geek. And even as an adult, there are musical phrases, especially with the instruments, even more than the words, that will send me into a space where I feel 
very soothed, very safe, very joyous, very happy, kind of depending on what's going on. And I will listen to songs just for tiny moments, like ridiculously tiny moments. Um, And I'm going to give you some examples here. The first is from the musical My Fair Lady. It's from the original album with Julie Andrews. And it is not what is being said. It is just what the instruments are doing in the background at this very particular moment. So this is, again, just kind of an example of sensory preferences, doing something to the brain and the body uh, in a good way um, that's very soothing. And there still will be rain on that plane down in Spain. Even that will remain without you. I can do without you. And that is it. Let me just give you that part again. It's a tiny moment. And there still will be rain this on isn't that it. plane down in Spain. Even that Here will it comes. Remain Get ready. You. Just the instruments. I can do. I will ask all of the parents I work with, and so if you're one of those, you will hopefully remember me asking, do your children listen or watch the same clip over and over again, you know, even at a moment? And if they do, to me, there is a good chance that there is something very specific from that moment or that image that they are getting from that. Let me give you another example for me. This also happens to be another Julie Andrews example, but there's something about, again, the orchestration, not so much the words that are being sung, that does something for me. Um, So let me give you an example from a very well-known song from The Sound of Music, Do Re Mi. And it's going to be in the background as the characters are talking, again, with the instruments. Good, but it doesn't mean anything. So we put in words, one word for every note, like this. But it doesn't mean anything. So we put in words, one word for every note, like this. I could listen to that many, many times and enjoy it. And again, I will listen to the whole seven-minute ridiculous song, really, um, to hear just that part. One more example, just because, again, I just think this is interesting and probably applicable to a lot of kids, especially if they have uh, difficulties processing speech. This is from a more modern recording, has Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin, and it's just one moment of a song from a musical called Sunday in the Park with George. And the moment in this particular one absolutely includes the voices, but of course, again, for me and my brain, it's about the entire orchestra swelling here. So let's listen to this. Not yet. Coming up right here. And so that's what that is. Just that one part of a song. Love it. And so those are some examples of sensory preferences within what we think of as perhaps just a hobby or just an interest that actually can, on an individual basis, make us feel safe. And music just so happens to be pretty universal in that aspect. Um, you probably have examples of entire songs or certain people's voices 
or moments of songs like mine that give you that same feeling and rush and in a lot of ways spirituality. Continuing through the worksheets with Dr. Delahook, we have on page 150 visual preferences. This may, for some of you, be very relatable, but for a lot of you may not. And we see visual preferences, especially um, in autistic people, where they will look at something for a long time. And a lot of times this behavior, quote unquote behavior, was seen as a negative thing, but I don't think it's a negative thing at all. And in fact, it is these kinds of things that I am way more interested in as a behavior consultant than the actual challenging behaviors themselves. What are they drawn to? For me, as a visual example, I am enamored with watching trees blowing in the wind, right? With the leaves themselves, especially if they're those um, leaves with different colors, you know, like a green and then a whitish green on the back. There's a term for that that I don't remember. But that's something that on a visual level I can look at for a long time and get the same feelings of safety and again, almost a spirituality as an adult that I really enjoy. There are other things. I remember as a kiddo, I loved Garfield books. <laughs> and what I remember liking the best was a very particular look that the characters would give. It was in a sense when they would look at the camera, quote unquote, and kind of glare at the screen because somebody next to them was doing something silly, right? And so you have this very specific look. And I'm going to put some examples in the show notes that I, as a young child, thought was hilarious. And in a way, this visual attraction to glaring faces, I honestly think set me up for my particular brand of humor, which is a, um, I think anger can be very funny, right? Pretend anger in in certain situations um, and looking at the camera deadpan or looking at the camera glaring. I see in many clients that they are drawn to faces, not necessarily the same face, but that they get such a joy out of looking at a particular picture of a face or certain faces in general. And A lot of kids who enjoy an element of faces in this regard, they also can be very sensitive to faces, so your facial expression. They also might try to use, in my case, you know, use that humor, which quote-unquote works in a Garfield book um, in real life, but then it doesn't come across, people think you're being rude, and the joke doesn't fly. So there's a lot of different ways that these interact, in my opinion, with Um, really who a person becomes and their personality based on these early sensory preferences. Page 151 has touch preferences. I just remember myself as a little kid very drawn to satin. I mean, this is when I was three years old, probably. When I would uh, crawl into bed with my parents early in the morning, uh, on a lot of mornings, I would want the end of the pillowcase where there was an opening because that felt, and my parents happened to have like satin or some pretend satin kind of sheets uh, and uh, pillowcases. I liked the feeling of that. So if I got into bed and the pillow happened to be flipped the other way, I would wake my mom up and ask her to flip the pillow over. And I have some memories of this. I don't know. I wonder if she remembers that. And that was because I was particularly drawn to that touch preference. On the other side of things, you know, thankfully for me, I am a sensory seeker. So there's not a lot that I don't like. um, And this is not the case (laughs) with a lot of people with developmental disabilities or fetal alcohol. But one thing that I did not like was the texture of wooden spoons. And so when my parents would cook, they had these wooden spoons. And, you know, you might taste what you're cooking with them. But I can't handle that. I still cannot handle that to the point where if I'm eating somewhere um, and they have chopsticks, 
I will ask for a fork because if they're wooden chopsticks, my my mouth cannot handle that rough wooden texture. If the chopsticks happen to be plastic, no problem. But it's, again, sensory preferences from my earliest days. We can look at fragrance preferences on page 152. Again, I am a sensory seeker. I love things like essential oils. I bought a bunch one time, you know, a bunch of like samples, and I could sit there and smell all of them no problem. But when I had friends do it with me, a lot of them had to stop after a while. And that to me is amazing. The idea of being overwhelmed by fragrance is not something that I deal with. I like strong colognes, right? But a lot of people not only... Is it not preferable, but it makes a lot of people sick? And that's difficult for me because I like to wear heavy scents. Um, And what I think of as a normal dose of cologne, for example, is way too much. So I've been told. And now, you know, in public, I just don't wear them because so many people are sensitive to them. Page 153 has movement preferences. So how does your child walk? How do they crawl? Do they like to run? Do they like to jump? Do they pull themselves up on things and climb? All of these things give us insights into their sensory preferences and therefore things that they can use to calm themselves so that we can initiate with them to establish safety and connection. Now, with all of this, we have to remember certain things, and Dr. Delahook gives us this note of caution on page 154. Quote, Memories are sensory experiences that are coded with emotional tags. Unquote. And so, if at any point a strategy that we're trying creates a negative reaction, right, and this is, this is Dr. Delahook telling this, but this is also my position about anything ever that I recommend, quote, simply stop the experience and provide an abundance of human connection in a way that comforts the child, unquote. So as we explore sensory things, even if we think that this might be pleasurable for a person, it just might so happen that there is either something directly related to the sensory experience itself or what's going on in the environment around you or in the interaction that you're having that happens to be dual coded with a negative sensory experience. And if they don't have regulation abilities, which we're going to expect, then there will be a negative response. So we don't want to push through sensory supports if the child is showing us that they are not liking it and it's going to hurt our connection and break the safety. And now we want to think of the red pathway, escalation, fight or flight, and thinking about how sensory strategies could potentially be helpful. On page 155, Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, the general strategy is to reduce the amount of input a child is coping with if he or she is on the red pathway, unquote. And so this is one of the reasons why my suggestions to people when there is escalation, is not to overload the person with your speaking. And it's usually even being quiet so they can actually think. Um, Being quiet will not necessarily work with everybody, depending on what's going on, but it's a good place to start. And then there are, of course, tweaks that we can make. Dr. Delahook talks about this idea of going low and slow. Quote, if you're talking to the child and nothing is getting through, lower your volume and try a different tone, or stop talking altogether. You can offer a hug or nonverbal physical comfort with a gesture. If the child provides body language that signals a desire for physical touch, move in gently and slowly. And that's on page 155 and 156. 
And a big part of responding when a child is on the red pathway, especially for somebody with an FASD, is that we want to give continual cues of safety. This is going to be seen for for you as the adult by the child, especially in your overall body language, which is why we want to go down to their level if they're a younger child, in your facial expressions, in your eye expressions, and in your voice prosody. And that's the tone that we use, right? When we're talking to certain people. We want to remember, of course, again, to limit all of the words that we're using. The more you are speaking, the more you are demanding of many different parts of the brain. It's not just executive functioning, and that can make things worse. Depending on the person that we're talking about and where they're at developmentally, what we do can be planned ahead of time through the plan together process of cognitive supports, right? So we're going to actually ask the person, what do you want us to do? But we have to remember that for them to either engage in that conversation or to give us meaningful problem-solving answers and things to brainstorm, they have to be developmentally ready so that process can have maximum effect. Parents are often asking me what specifically they should do during escalation on the red pathway, and it's hard to answer that because it is, again, so specific to the individual and to the situation. And this is another reason why having this thought out ahead of time and preferably practice and preferably with you having your own strategies to keep yourself calm is so important. If we don't have this and we think that we can wing it, it will not work. And especially if you as the adult do not stay calm, you will not be able to engage in co-regulation. And co-regulation definitely can happen proactively. If we have this routine that Dr. Delahook talked about with Morgan and we're being very intentional with our green pathway cues, we are engaging in co-regulation. And what we find is when our children are on the green pathway with us, they are actually helping us to regulate on a neuroscientific level. And that is where co-regulation comes in when stress is occurring. Because if you can keep the green pathway signals active, It won't be perfect, it might be clunky at first, but you will help the child realize, and really their brain, not not them intellectually, but the faulty neuroception or the unsafe neuroceptive parts of their brain recognize this person is safe and they are here to help me co-regulate through, again, these signals, and then when the child is ready, maybe through our physical affection and comfort. We also want to think about sensory strategies when somebody's on the blue pathway. That's a mobilization or what we think of as freeze. Again, a child in true shutdown mode, somebody who is not able to respond, not just somebody who we see, quote unquote, shutting down when they, you know, they're losing their ability to focus or to regulate. We're not talking about that kind of shutting down. We're talking about they are unable to respond. And there are pages in the book that give you what blue pathway looks like. When they're in that mode of shutdown, Dr. Delahook tells us that, quote, our goal will be to bring the child back into engagement with us. In this case, we are not helping to calm a child's revved up nervous system, but are wooing a child back into social engagement, unquote. And that's on page 156. Dr. Delahook then gives us some examples of therapeutic activities. These can include mindfulness, meditation, yoga, group sports, martial arts, However, we have to remember that when we're working with a child with an FASD, we have to think about how some of these are particularly demanding on their cognitive skills, especially this idea of mindfulness. Mindfulness can be very helpful, and I'm sure many therapists have suggested that to you, but when it comes to a child with an FASD, it probably will not be where we start with them, so just be aware of that. 
and the overall strategy for both red and blue pathways that I as a professional have shifted to the most is to start thinking about the body and talking about it with our child. Dr. Delahook, again, she gives us some mindfulness exercises to do this, but there are other things that we can do if somebody's not developmentally ready to do a mindfulness exercise and to think about how their body is responding. One thing that I've suggested is before we even ask the child, how does your body feel right now? Or how does your body feel when you're anxious or something like that? We can just start normalizing that conversation. So as we are relaying a story to everybody, maybe at the dinner table or whenever, you know, and we, we are having an emotion in that scenario, we can say, yeah, and when I feel annoyed, I can feel that in my stomach. Or when I get sad, I feel it in my eyes. And not asking them to do the same thing, but just planting those seeds about, oh, this is a way that we can talk about emotions, not just the emotion or what we think of as the emotion, but really what's going on in the body. And that, of course, will mean that you as the adult have to understand this in yourself. And I can guarantee you that for most of people listening to this podcast, you are not in touch with your body when it comes to where you are feeling it during emotions. We are fixated as adults on the emotion itself. A lot of us are just simply out of touch with our body. So before we start the conversation with our kid, we want to take some time. And there are, again, resources within the book and worksheets for us to look at how does my body respond when this is happening. And you might begin to find your own issues with neuroception and even how your child with through their behaviors and their cues can trigger in you these bodily sensations and the physiological response that leads to negative emotions before they've actually done anything that warrants some kind of negative response. Dr. Delahook finishes Morgan's story by telling us, quote, As we engaged Morgan in connecting his body awareness to his thinking mind, he began to grow more confident and more empowered to try new things and create solutions using his top-down thinking, unquote. That is what this chapter is about, how these sensory preferences and activities will lead us to the actual solutions when the person is ready. And so we start with the sensory preferences, we start thinking about the body, and eventually when the child is learning, we link what's going on to the emotions. And I just want to say again, even without all of this, the sensory preferences, the kind that I talked about, these little very individualistic quirks with auditory or visual or whatever, those in of themselves are interesting and worth, frankly, being amazed by when you watch a child engage in these things because they are telling you very much about what it is that speaks to this child and what it is they need from you. Thank you so much for listening. I know this was a quick overview of a big topic and I hope you read the chapter and fill out those worksheets so you can get the maximum benefit from it. I will talk to you all on the next episode when we talk about chapter six. Have a good one, everyone.